Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a bi-weekly podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex Dobranek, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. Taylor, what's up for today? So today we're going to be listening to the latest round of the Democratic primary debates. This one is held on ABC News. Now, in contrast to previous debates, this one has only half the amount of candidates, but 10 are still in the running. And we're going to be hearing from some of the front runners on a wide range of topics and issues. And what you'll hear during this debate are candidates trying to outfox each other, coming up with sound bites and also choosing carefully who they support and who they don't. And we've picked the most interesting moments of this debate to review, and we're going to be starting off with healthcare, where Elizabeth Warren is asked a question about how she'll pay for her ambitious Medicare for All plan. Now, before we get to that clip, we'd like to ask you as a listener to support us on our Patreon page, and you'll find the link down in the show notes. Your support really matters, and for as little as $3, you can support the show and keep us on the air. We'd love for this to remain a listener-supported show, so please hit the pause button and go do that now. And let's take a listen to this first clip. Senator Warren, let me me take that to you, particularly on what Senator Biden was saying there uh, about health care. He's actually praised Bernie Sanders for being candid about his health care plan. That Senator says that Senator Sanders has been candid about the fact that middle-class taxes are going to go up and most of private insurance is going to be eliminated. Will you make that same admission? So let's be clear about health care, and let's actually start where Vice President did. We all owe a huge debt to President Obama, who fundamentally transformed health care in America and committed this country to health care for every human being. And now the question is, how best can we improve on it? And I believe the best way we can do that is we make sure that everybody gets covered by health care at the lowest possible cost. How do we pay for it? We pay for it. Those at the very top, the richest individuals and the biggest corporations, are going to pay more. And middle class families are going to pay less. That's how this is going to work. Direct question. You said middle class families are going to pay less, but will middle class taxes go up to pay for the program? I know you believe that the deductibles and the premiums will go down. Will middle class taxes go up? Will private insurance be eliminated? Look, what families have to deal with is cost, total cost. That's what they have to deal with. And understand, families are paying for their health care today. Families pay every time an insurance company says, sorry, you can't see that specialist. Every time an insurance company says, sorry, that doctor is out of network. Sorry, we are not covering that prescription. Families are paying 
Every time they don't get a prescription filled because they can't pay for it, they don't have a lump checked out because they can't afford the copay. What we're talking about here is what's going to happen in families' pockets, what's going to happen in their budgets. And the answer is on Medicare for all. Costs are going to go up for wealthier individuals, and costs are going to go up for giant corporations. But for hardworking families across this country, costs are going to go down, and that's how it should work under Medicare for all in our health care system. Senator Sanders, you were invoked by the vice president. Also take on that question about taxes. Uh, Joe said that uh, Medicare for all would cost over $30 trillion. That's right, Joe. Status quo over 10 years will be $50 trillion. Every study done shows that Medicare for All is the most cost-effective approach to providing health care to every man, woman, and child in this country. I, who wrote the damn bill, if I may say so, <laughs> intend to eliminate all out-of-pocket expenses, all deductibles, all co-payments. Nobody in America will pay more than $200 a year for prescription drugs because we're going to stand up to the greed and corruption and price fixing of the pharmaceutical industry. We need, we need a health care system that guarantees health care to all people as every other major country does, not a system which provides a hundred billion dollars a year in profit for the drug companies and the insurance companies. And to tell you how absurd the system is, tonight on ABC, the healthcare industry will be advertising, telling you how bad Medicare for all is because they want to protect their profits. That is absurd. So here we have an interesting thing where Warren is jumping in right out the gate and, you know, giving President Obama a nice big hug. Uh, this is important. And you'll see a lot of the candidates do that here in this debate because Last time, they were really criticized because they took out a lot of uh, criticism on uh, Biden um, and sort of uh, a casualty indirectly of all of that was President Obama. They were criticizing um, the, uh, uh, the president's uh, record on, um, on health care, on foreign affairs, on you know, a whole wide range of things. And Biden was able to use that as a shield to say, why are you attacking Obama? Um, and they got a lot of criticism for that. So here we have Warren come out, you know, defend President Obama, uh, embrace him, and then start talking about what she's going to do instead. And, you know, what does she do? She has a nice little slogan. Costs are going to go up for wealthy individuals and costs are going to go up for giant corporations. But hardworking families, costs are going to go down. And that's how it should work. And so she just keeps repeating that over and over and over again. And when they press her on it, she just says it over and over again. And it's just it's her way to sort of dodge with a nice slogan that she can repeat and repeat and repeat. Yeah. And she's getting really good at those dodges because the moderators are asking, of course, the question that everyone is asking is, well, great, you have Medicare for all. We all agree that that is going to be a good idea. And but how how is it going to be paid for? Where are where's the money actually going to come from? And what you're going to hear from a lot of the candidates, and we did an episode a couple episodes ago where we were talking about transitional phrases, how candidates would transition from 
one point to another or what would happen if they didn't want to answer a particular question. And Warren's transitional phrase is, let's be clear. So what does it mean to be clear? And you also hear others saying the same phrase, like Kamala Harris, for example. What does it mean to be clear? Well, it's she's going to clear it up for you in the way in which she views it, in the way in which she you know thinks about it. And so she says it's going to be clear, but who is it going to be clear for, right? What does that mean? And she says, well, what we've done is we owe this huge debt to Obama. That's a pace. And now the question is, how best can we improve on it? Well, is that the question? Whose question is that? Like, who's actually asking that? Well, now everyone's asking that in their minds because that's how she, you know, says it. And then she acknowledges that question of how we will pay for it with the slogan that, you know, Alex was just talking about it. And, you know, we hear the classic liberal slanting here of the points in the messages. So things like she says, costs will go up for giant corporations, costs will go up for wealthy individuals, but for hardworking families across the country, costs will go down. Now, notice how she adds in that little adjective there, hardworking families. So what she's implying here is that it's the families that are working the hardest, not the wealthy individuals, not the giant corporations. And we need to really put the value back into the pockets of the hardworking families. And we hear her talking again, not about individuals, but about families. Why does she emphasize families so much? Well, that's her message. She's talking to middle class families and she wants her people to think about it in terms of the whole family. And this all makes her appear more human, of course, and caters really to those middle class values. Now, in this next clip, we're going to be listening to Bernie Sanders and he's going to be asked a kind of similar question. But in particular, he's going to be responding to Joe Biden's criticism, saying that Sanders's proposal is just too expensive. So let's take a listen to this part. You get the you get a response, then we're going to broaden out the discussion. Okay, number one, my health care plan does significantly cut the cost of the largest out-of-pocket payment you'll pay is a thousand dollars. You'll be able to get into a anyone who can't afford it gets automatically enrolled in the in, in, in the Medicare type option we have, et cetera. But guess what? Of the hundred and sixty million people who like their health care now, they can keep it. If they don't like it, they can leave. <clears throat> number one. Number two. The fact of the matter is, we're in a situation where, if you notice, he hadn't answered the question. This is about candor, honesty, big ideas. Well, let's have a big idea. The, the tax of 2% that the senator is talking about, that raises about $3 billion. Guess what? That leaves you about $28 billion short. The senator said before, it's going to cost you in your pay. There will be a deductible in your paycheck. You're going to, the middle class person, someone making 60 grand with three kids, they're going to end up paying $5,000 more. They're going to end up paying 4% more on their income tax. That's a reality. Now, it's not a bad idea if you like it. I don't like it. Okay, now I want everybody to keep to the time, but you did invoke both senators. I have to get responses to them, and then we will run out. Senator Warren, you go first. So, let's be clear. I've actually never met anybody who likes their health insurance company. I've met people who like their doctors. I've met people who like their nurses. I've met people who like their pharmacists. I've met people who like their physical therapists. What they want is access to health care. And we just need to be clear about what Medicare for All is all about. Instead of paying premiums into insurance companies and then having insurance companies build their profits by saying no 
to coverage. We're going to do this by saying everyone is covered by Medicare for all. Every health care provider is covered. And the only question here in terms of difference is where to send the bill. Senator Sanders. Let us be clear, Joe. In the United States of America, we are spending twice as much per capita on health care as the Canadians or any other major country on earth. This America. Yeah, but Americans don't want to pay twice as much as other countries. And they guarantee health care to all people. On the, my Medicare for all proposal, when you don't pay out of pocket and you don't pay premiums, maybe you have run into people who love their premiums. I haven't. What people want is cost-effective health care. Medicare for all will save the average American substantial sums of money on his or her health care bill. And this is a great moment from Sanders right here that I would like to really highlight. Um, It's the way that he uses his voice. Now, Bernie is really known to have that loud sort of screechy old man yelling um, tone. But here he really departs from that. And right at the beginning, he he's uh, using a really quiet voice and saying, you know, Joe, Joe said that you know, Medicare for all will cost 30 trillion dollars. And that's right, Joe. And then he jumps up to be really loud and he yells, well, guess what? The status quo is <laughs> for 10 years is 50 trillion dollars. And then he launches into his his rant where he's screaming and screaming and screaming. And so what he's using is his voice there with the you know real quiet portion to sound agreeable, but then shock the listener in in their seats um, as he you know amps it up and starts talking about this huge cost. And so he's sort of enacting that that uh, amplitude of price in his voice to get his point across. And, you know, I guess it's a great way for him to use his communication method that he feels most comfortable in to sort of hammer home his point. Yeah, it's incredible how we hear him really amping up and going at, you know, Biden there with the thing that in which he said. And what I want you to pay attention to here also with Sanders is the way he uses language. So first of all, he says this thing about I wrote the damn bill, which is his That's something he said before, and people have criticized them on that. But, you know, I actually tried to Google this and try to figure out what does he actually mean? You know, what bill is it? And no one could actually list what bill that actually was. Now, I'm sure some of our listeners will probably know the bill, but he's talking about the bill. Well, which bill was it exactly that he wrote? Well, he doesn't really say that. He just says he wrote this this bill. And then he lists a bunch of things that people don't like, and he puts no in front of them. So this is a classic tactic, of course, is just say what it is that people don't like and really emphasize it. So no deductibles, no co-payments, no this, no that. And nobody will pay more than $200 per year because we're going to stand up to the greed and price fixing of the pharmaceutical industry. So these are called universal quantifiers when someone says like everyone, nobody, no. And this is why Bernie Sanders' communication method is actually very similar to Donald Trump because both of them use a lot of universal quantifiers. He also uses a lot of that must language, must, have, should, And what that type of language does is the universal quantifiers combined with 
those necessity-based language constructs, it tends to create a lot of energy within people. And that could be positive energy, it could be negative energy, but it definitely amps them up. It either makes them hate Sanders or really, really like what he has to say. And he likes being that polarizing figure. You know, and you can tell by the way he uses his voice tone, how he really brings up that energy within people and you know gets them gets them into that. And then the last thing that I wanted to mention about this particular segment is that he gives us a false dichotomy and choice here. So we need a healthcare system that does X, Y, and Z, everything that the system Bernie's promoting does, not a system that does all these other things. So he's even get he's only giving you two choices. This is a black or white framework. You either do it Bernie's way or you do it in the metaphorical highway. So either you're going to do it in the status quo, which we already know he's amped us up to really not like that, or you're going to do it Bernie's way, and Bernie's way is the better way. But notice how there's not a lot of distinctions or in-between areas between this or that. It's just one thing or the other. And now in this next section, the candidates are really going to get into it, hammering out exactly what the differences are among their uh, different plans. You get, the, you get a response, then we're going to broaden out the discussion. Okay, number one, my health care plan does significantly cut the cost of the largest out-of-pocket payment you'll pay is $1,000. You'll be able to get into a, anyone who can't afford it, gets automatically enrolled in, a, in, in, in the Medicare-type option we have, et cetera. But guess what? Of the 160 million people who like their health care now, they can keep it. If they don't like it, they can leave, <clears throat> number one. Number two... The fact of the matter is, we're in a situation where, if you notice, he hadn't answered the question. This is about candor, honesty, big ideas. Well, let's have a big idea. The, the tax of 2% that the senator's talking about, that raises about $3 billion. Guess what? That leaves you about $28 billion short. The senator said before, it's going to cost you in your pay. There will be a deductible in your paycheck. You're going to, the middle class person, someone making 60 grand with three kids, they're going to end up paying $5,000 more. They're going to end up paying 4% more on their income tax. That's a reality. Now, it's not a bad idea if you like it. I don't like it. Okay, now I want everybody to keep to the time, but you did invoke both senators. I have to get responses to them, and then we sure, will run out. Good. Senator Warren, you go first. So, Let's be clear, I've actually never met anybody who likes their health insurance company. I've met people who like their doctors. I've met people who like their nurses. I've met people who like their pharmacists. I've met people who like their physical therapists. What they want is access to health care. And we just need to be clear about what Medicare for All is all about. Instead of paying premiums into insurance companies and then having insurance companies build their profits by saying no to coverage. We're gonna do this by saying everyone is covered by Medicare for All, every healthcare provider is covered. And the only question here in terms of difference is where to send the bill. Senator Sanders. Let us be clear, Joe. In the United States of America, we are spending twice as much per capita on healthcare as the Canadians or any other major country on earth. This America. Yeah, but Americans don't want to pay twice as much as other countries. And they guarantee health care to all people. Under my Medicare for All proposal, when you don't pay out of pocket and you don't pay premiums, maybe you have run into people who love their premiums. I haven't. What people want is cost-effective health care. Medicare for All will save 
the average American substantial sums of money on his or her health care bill. Senator so we hear here at the beginning, Joe Biden is really defending his proposal and he's going into this situation of really going at it with Sanders. So out of the 160,000 people who like their health care now, they can keep it. Now, I don't know if he should have said that because of Obama's famous um, quip of if you like your doctor, you can keep your doctor. We found that that wasn't true. But he said this interesting phrase here where he said, we're in a situation now where if you notice it, he didn't answer the question. This is about candor, honesty, and big ideas. So he starts off talking to us about this situation that we're in, but the situation that he describes is just him telling us his framing of the situation and then basically saying that Bernie is not being honest by not answering the question. And we hear later on that Bernie comes back because someone calling Bernie a liar. I mean, you definitely don't want to do that without Bernie coming back with a strong response. But one of the real interesting things here is this part where Elizabeth Warren is talking and she uses her standard transitional phrase that we were just talking about. Now, let's be clear. I've never met anybody who likes their health insurance company. And that is a pacing statement. And remember that a pacing statement is acknowledging the way that things are so that a person can say yes in their mind. She then says, I've met people who like their doctors, their nurses, and so on. And so she brings it down to this personal level. It's really easy to dislike an entity or a corporation or a big healthcare plan that is taking away your ability to have coverage or that might ultimately hurt you medically. Um, but it's really hard to not like a person. And so she brings it down to this personal level. Again, we've heard her talking about families. And then she really just gives this really simple message of what, sh- what they want access to is health care. They want access to health care. And, you know, instead of sending those premiums to the insurance companies, again, this is the big guy versus the small guy, instead of sending them there, And having the insurance companies build their profits by saying, no, we're going to say basically, yes, that everyone is covered. Every healthcare provider is covered. And the only difference is where to send the bill. So this is no that the insurance company might tell you versus everyone. So again, let's hear that language. Everyone, nobody, all, every time, everything. That's that universal quantifier message. It also plays into that liberal framing. Yeah, we have, you know, all three candidates here sort of hashing out their differences in a way that uh, I think really highlights exactly the, the, the difference in the policy that actually exists. So we've got Joe Biden out there arguing about how, you know, th- they're not actually describing how they're going to pay for it. And he's really trying to nail them on uh, the fact that individual people are going to be paying uh, higher taxes. Um, and then Elizabeth Warren comes in and, to reframe that entire thing. And she does a great way, like Taylor said, of pacing with the current situation and then saying that, yeah, it's all money that's going to be paid, but we're just arguing about where the bill is going to go. So she, in a way, is able to sort of acknowledge the concerns that Joe Biden is bringing up and then pivot and reframe the whole thing by just saying, you know, my policy is just the same, except, uh, or my policy 
acknowledges this reality of the healthcare system that Joe brought up, but I'm solving it in a better way because where I'm sending the bill is not to you. Uh, and so she she sort of does that, and it's a way to make her plan more appealing while still sort of neutralizing the concerns that Joe is bringing up right there. And then Bernie, of course, p- uh, piggybacks on that and uh, and uh, continues on with the refrain of that nobody likes their health insurance company, nobody likes their um, the b- giant bills that they receive. Um, and sort of he uses that straw man argument um, against Joe Biden there to sort of uh, one up on his on his plan. Um, and so it's sort of a way for uh, the two, um, I guess, second and third place candidates to team up on Joe there um, with Joe still trying to um, you know, defend the, the, the middle ground. Um, you'll see later um, where the other candidates sort of jump on uh, the two of them and uh, agree with Joe. And so you'll see a lot of the other candidates um, that we won't be covering here on this episode um, actually came to Joe's defense in the defense of, you know, expanding Obamacare. Um, but uh, right here, you know, this is sort of the, the last uh, strongest arguments for Medicare for all. Yeah. And what happens after this point that you just listened to is that there's a lot of back and forth happening, especially between Julian Castro attacking Joe Biden and just a lot of back and forth between the candidates. And we're going to be moving ahead in the debate to the questions that the moderators asked on race. And a couple of candidates had said a couple of things, but now we're going to be jumping right to a clip of Pete Buttigieg and then following him, Kamala Harris. And this, these are two really interesting candidates to be listening to on the issue of race because the moderators are proposing to them very strong criticisms of their records. So Pete Buttigieg has been under fire on the issue of race due to his the police shootings that happened in his tenure as mayor. And really, he's not very popular among African-Americans. So let's take a listen to how he handles this. And you're going to hear some interesting short clip uh, phrases here. And then after him, Kamala Harris. Mayor Buttigieg, you've been struggling with issues around race in your own community. You've also said that anyone who votes to reelect President Trump is at best looking the other way on racism. Does that sort of talk alienate voters and potentially deepen divisions in our country? I believe what's deepened divisions in the country is the conduct of this president, and we have a chance to change all of that. Look, systemic racism preceded this president, and even when we defeat him, it will be with us. That's why we need a systemic approach to dismantle it. It's, it's not enough to just take a racist policy, replace it with a neutral one, and expect things will just get better on their own. Harms compound. In the same way that a dollar saved compound, so does a dollar stolen. And we know that the generational theft of the descendants of slaves is part of why everything from housing to education to health to employment basically puts us in two different countries. I have proposed the most comprehensive vision to tackle systemic racism in every one of these areas. Marshalling as many resources as went into the Marshall Plan that rebuilt Europe, but 
this time a Douglas plan that we invest right here at home to make sure that we're not only dealing with things like the over-incarceration of black Americans, but also black solutions, entrepreneurship, raising to 25% the target for the federal government to do business with minority-owned businesses, investing in HBCUs that are training and educating the next generation of entrepreneurs. We can and must do that, but that means transcending this framework that pits us against each other, that pits a single black mother of three against a displaced auto worker. Because when I come, where I come from, a lot of times that displaced auto worker is a single black mother of three. We've got to say that and bring people together. Also a concern for people of color is criminal justice reform. Senator Harris, you released your plan for that just this week, and it does contradict some of your prior positions. Among them, you used to oppose the legalization of marijuana, now you don't. You used to oppose outside investigations of police shootings, now you don't. You've said that you changed on these and other things because you were, quote, swimming against the current and thankfully the currents have changed. But when you had the power, why didn't you try to affect change then? So there have been, um, there have been, I'm glad you asked me this question, and there have been many distortions of my record. Let me be very clear. Uh, I made a decision to become a prosecutor for two reasons. One, I've always wanted to protect people and keep them safe. And second, I was born knowing about how this criminal justice system in America has worked in a way that has been informed by racial bias. And I could tell you extensively about the experiences I and my family members have personally had. But I made a decision that if I was gonna have the ability to reform the system, I would try to do it from the inside. And so I took on the position that allowed me, without asking permission, to create one of the first in the nation uh, initiatives that was a model and became a national model around people who were arrested for drugs and getting them jobs. I created one of the first in the nation requirements that a state law enforcement agency would have to wear cameras and keep them on full time. I created one of the first in the nation trainings for police officers on the issue of racial bias and the need to reform the system. Was I able to get enough done? Absolutely not. But my plan has been described by activists as being a bold and comprehensive plan that is about ending mass incarceration, about taking the profit out of the criminal justice system. I plan on shutting down for profit prisons on day one. It will be about what we need to do to hold law enforcement, including prosecutors, accountable. And finally, my plan is about making sure that in America's criminal justice system, we de-incarcerate women and children, that we end solitary confinement, and that we work on keeping families intact. And as President of the United States, knowing the system from the inside, I will have the ability to be an effective leader and get this job complete. Thank you, Senator Harris. Senator Klobuchar. So here we've got, you know, really Buttigieg coming out on this question where he's asked a very pointed question about race. And so what happens here is that, you know, Buttigieg has a very, you know, like Taylor said, a very mixed record. Somebody who's come under fire recently for the way um, some of the he's handled some of the incidents in his hometown. And so he's asked about, you know, his racial relations and his policy. And so, you know, in the in the time from the beginning of this campaign, he's recently rolled out 
his new um, Douglas plan to sort of fix his issues that he has with African-Americans um, and, you know, people of color. And so in this situation here, he's going over that plan in his, you know, big, broad, solutions-oriented thing, talking about the Marshall Plan and how that solved, you know, the issues in Europe. And now we need uh, the Douglas Plan. The The real moment that that stood out to me, though, was the way that he talked about those um, that just as a dollar saved compounds, so does a dollar stolen. And that's something that I feel like is really going to resonate um, with people who hear this and people who can identify with that, because I think it really encapsulates a lot of the, um, the, the argument for reparations or the argument for any sort of affirmative action. Um, this is something that I think is going to resonate with a lot of people, but it's a way for him to say it in a way that, uh, that is metaphorical and it's a way that, um, that, you know, doesn't argue on the merits necessarily, but instead just takes something that everybody can relate to, um, compound interest and, uh, and then tie it to racial disparity. Uh, and that's really interesting. And then you've got Harris who comes in and, you know, she starts, you know, sort of coming at it from a personal perspective, but then decides that she's not going to talk about, you know, her being really the one of two black candidates on the stage. She's not going to um, take that uh, take that position because um, I think it's, it's fairly obvious. And I think people are expecting her to sort of come from that angle. And so she surprises people by just saying, you know, OK. I'm not going to talk about my own personal experiences. You can just assume all of that. And now here is uh, my record. And um, I'm glad that you asked this question about my record because there have been a lot of distortions about my record. So it's, it's, it's almost like it's her way of, of parrying that question where the moderators are, are they're asking a very biased question right there. Um, but she sort of does it in almost a sarcastic kind of way of like, I'm glad you asked me this question because there have been many distortions. Like the one that you're asking me is a distortion. Like the pointed premise of your question is a distortion. Um, and then she's able to, uh, defend it and, uh, quote unquote, like set the record straight. Yeah. We hear her really going into this place of saying that what everyone is saying about her isn't really true. And, what happens here from a persuasion, you know, point of view is that she's pacing the moderator's question, you know, by saying that she's glad to have received it. But then in the next breath, she then labels it as a distortion. And then she says, let me be very clear. Now, again, same transitional phrase as Elizabeth Warren. Let me be very clear. And after that, she goes into this history, right? Uh, I, I made a decision to become a prosecutor for two reasons. So she ignores the criticism against her. And now she's just going back to her history, back to her strength, back to her motivations. Now you can't argue with someone's personal history. It's that whole thing where Donald Trump is in the rally and he's saying, you know, I met a guy yesterday and what that guy told me was this. And you can't argue with him because you weren't there. And so it's really hard to fact check anything like that. And yet that type of personal story, you know, it really goes back to something core within the person. And so why Harris decided to become a prosecutor, no one can really argue with that. You know, there's no way that they can say, well, your motives were different. 
And so she she gives this idea of I've wanted to protect people, keep them safe. But two, I was no, I was born knowing about how the criminal justice system has worked that has been informed by racial bias. So the first one, protecting people and keeping them safe are those commander in chief kind of qualities, you know, going back to her positive experience. And then the second one is really pacing the audience and the moderator, because what happened during this debate is that, you know, here we have Lindsay Davis, you know, asking this question about race and, you know, Lindsay Davis is African-American. And we really hear that all of the candidates are on the same page with regard to we need either reparations or stronger um, enforcement about uh, race. And we need to really take this as a serious issue. So there's no question here that this is important to all of them. And so that's really something where she says that and it matches everyone else's expectations. And then she says this interesting thing here at the end where we're going to de-incarcerate women and children. Okay, I'm not sure what that means. We're going to end solitary confinement and work at keeping families intact. So what does it mean to de-incarcerate women and children? Like, it sounds really good when she says it rapid fire like that. But what does that mean? Does that mean women who have committed crimes, you're now going to take them out of the jails? Does that mean, you know, kids who have committed crimes and they're in juvenile detention that you're going to take them out of those facilities? Kind of sounds to me like that's what she's saying. What is she really talking about there? Well, we don't have a lot of facts, you know, to go off of, but that's what she wants. She doesn't want us to have facts. She wants for us to say, oh, this is a person who has a strong record, so just trust her, you know, on this particular thing. And one thing, the difference between this and some of the prior debates is that Harris has really come in in those prior debates with a lot of little sharp quips, right? She has come in with some little nuggets that you can tell were prepared in advance. And she does have one later on in this debate that is, you know, definitely prepared and kind of interesting against Joe Biden. Um, But notice how when she's under the gun, she's not bringing all of that stuff out when she is really being asked a tough question, because when the moderator asked this question of her, there was this loud applause that was happening. And when she was really in that under the gun or really in that place of tension, she didn't bring that out. So that's just an interesting, you know, little thing to um, to go at here. Now, in this next clip, what we're going to be listening to is another uh, clip of Harris. But this one is going to be talking about gun control. And you're going to hear her really going after Joe Biden here where Um, Joe Biden has a particular position and Biden is trying to go more on the constitutional framework and Harris is trying to be more motivational. So let's take a listen to this part. You did bring up assault weapons here and many of you on this stage have talked about executive orders. Senator Harris, you have said that you would take executive action on guns within your first 100 days, including banning imports of AR-15 assault weapons. That's right. President Obama, after Sandy Hook, more than 23 executive actions, and yet here we all are today. In recent days, former Vice President Biden has said about executive orders, some really talented people are seeking the nomination. They said, I'm going to issue an executive order. Biden saying there's no constitutional authority to issue that executive order when they say I'm going to eliminate assault weapons, saying you can't do it by executive order any more than Trump can do things when he says he can do it by executive order. Does the vice president have a point there? Some things you can, many things you can't. Let's let the senator answer. Well, I mean, I would just say, hey, Joe, 
instead of saying no, we can't, let's say yes, we can. <laughs> let's be constitutional. We got a constitution. And yes, we can, because I'll tell you something. The way that I think about this is um, I've seen more autopsy photographs than I care to tell you. I have attended more police officer funerals than I care to tell you. I have hugged more mothers of homicide victims than I care to tell you. And the idea that we would wait for this Congress, which has just done nothing, to act is just, it, it, is, it is overlooking the fact that every day in America, our babies are going to school to have drills, elementary, middle, and high school students, where they are learning about how they have to hide in a closet or crouch in a corner if there is a mass shooter roaming the hallways of their school. I was talking about this at one of my town halls, and, 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 and this child, it was eight years old probably, came up to me, it was like it was a secret between the two of us, and he tugged on my jacket and he said, I had to have one of those drills. It is traumatizing our children. El Paso, and Beto, God love you for standing so courageously in the midst of that tragedy. You know, people asked me in El Paso, they said, you know, because I have a long-standing record on this issue, they said, well, do you think Trump um, is responsible for what happened? And I said, well, look, I mean, obviously he didn't pull the trigger, but he's certainly been tweeting out the ammunition. Senator Not, Harris, thank I, you. I, Vice President Biden, do you still stand by what you said on an executive what order? What I said was, the question, speak to constitutional scholars. If, in fact, we could say, by the way, you can't own the following weapons, period. It cannot be sold anymore. Check with constitutional scholars. Uh, now, Mr. You Vice President, thank you. Congressman O'Rourke, I want to go to you on this. I'm going to work down the road here, but I do want to come to Congressman O'Rourke because I know this is personal to you. El Paso is your hometown. Some on this stage have suggested a voluntary buyback for guns in this country. You've gone further. You said, quote, Americans who own AR-15s and AK-47s will have to sell them to the government, all of them. You know the critics call this confiscation. Are you proposing taking away their guns, and how would this work? I am. If it's a weapon that was designed to kill people on a battlefield, if... The high-impact, high-velocity round, when it hits your body, shreds everything inside of your body because it was designed to do that so that you would bleed to death on a battlefield and not be able to get up and kill one of our soldiers. When we see that being used against children, and in Odessa, I met the mother of a 15-year-old girl who was shot by an AR-15, mm -hmm. and that mother watched her bleed to death over the course of an hour because so many other people were shot by that AR-15 in Odessa and Midland. There weren't enough ambulances to get to them in time. Hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47. We're not going to allow it to be used against our fellow Americans anymore. Thank you. And I want to say this. I'm listening to the people of this country. The day after I proposed doing that, I went to a gun show in Conway, Arkansas, to meet with those who were selling AR-15s and AK-47s and those who were buying those weapons. And you might be surprised there was some common ground there. Folks who said, I would willingly give that up, cut it to pieces. I don't need this weapon to hunt. 
to defend myself. It is a weapon of war. So let's do the right thing, but let's bring everyone in America into the conversation, Republicans, Democrats, gun owners, and non-gun owners alike. Can I make a point? Congressman, thank you. I, I want to bring in Senator... Wow, and this is a really fiery moment here where, you know, each candidate is trying to position themselves differently. We've got Joe Biden trying to sound like the centrist and the pragmatist here. And I don't know if he realizes he's in a Democratic primary where all these people are just trying to throw red meat at the crowd. But we've got Kamala Harris out there saying that, you know, yes, yes, we can. You know, uh, (laughs) Joe, how about we stop saying no, we can't. And let's say yes, we can. She has that can phrase to get the applause and to get her point across. I think people can sort of see that as something that she had planned. Um, so I don't know exactly how genuine it came across, but you know, it's effective and it gets her the applause line and it gets the attention focused on her. So she can then, you know, launch into, uh, her discussion about all the things that she's, she's seen as a prosecutor in California, um, and, and the things that she's seen on the campaign trail. You've got, you know, Beto, who has maybe the strongest position on guns out there. And he's talking about, you know, confiscating the guns. And he goes into this this passionate um, display right there of, you know, what he's going to do. And, you know, I think that's in extremely sharp contrast to what Joe's saying right here, because Joe is barely able to, you know, get his point across. Like he tries to interject and say, you know, speak to constitutional scholars, speak to constitutional scholars. Nobody wants to hear that. Nobody at this debate, no, no supporter, no Democratic base. Like, there's not any, con- like, group of constituents out there that wants to hear about talking to constitutional scholars about whether they can take guns or not. Uh, and so you, he really just tees it up for everybody else to one-up the next person on how they're going to handle guns. And that's exactly what they do. And so that's where you sort of get this, this passionate plea from Kamala and Beto that I think is really effective. Yeah, we hear here Kamala really hitting Joe with that zinger uh, to get him off base a little bit and to get him on the back foot and you know into the defensive. And then she moves into this personal experience. And we know, again, it's hard to argue with someone's personal experience. And we hear her talking about this conversational language of, I've seen more of this than I care to tell ya. I've done more of this than I care to tell ya. And then on the last one, she moves into I care to tell you. So she's demonstrating there that she can both be friendly and at the same time be really formal when the time calls for it. And then she goes into this thing about the drills. So every day are babies. And of course, who wants to harm a baby? She doesn't say kids. She says a baby. You know, and that's implied and purposeful, of course. But she says they're going to school in order to do drills. So think about what she's implying there, that the primary purpose of them going to school is for them to do drills. And then she goes back into another one of her personal experiences. So I was talking to this little kid and he tugged on my shoulder and it was that secret between us. And he says, I had to do one of those drills. And it's really interesting how she creates this kind of moment, this magical moment as, you know, her with this kid, even though what he's saying is not the point, you know, it's, we could, we could hear him saying that and understand that it could be true, but it's what she, through her adult eyes, sees as the innocence of a child. So she's inviting us to step into also seeing through those eyes 
also simultaneously seeing it through the kid's eyes and what that kid must have had to go through. But again, we're not getting the kid's perspective. We're getting Kamala's perspective as she's telling us that it must be happening to the kid. And then we hear Beto really coming in with this idea of a weapon of war, the battlefield. If it's a weapon that was used on a battlefield, if it was designed to slaughter human beings, then that's you know what it is. Well, remember that just about all guns were designed to kill people or stop them kind of by definition. But what he's doing is he's implying that there is a separation between civilian and military and anything that is military and he's putting you know AR-15 and AK-47 in that category anything that is military does not belong in civilian hands and so he's saying we're going to come and take them now of course this clip by Beto was immediately posted on Fox News it was tweeted about by some of the reporters and so the Republicans are definitely seizing on this as a way to start to make their points Now, in this next clip, we're going to be listening as the debate swings to immigration, and they're going to be asking Mayor Pete, and they're going to be asking Beto again, who, of course, must be the experts on immigration. They're going to be asking them some pointed questions. Notice, of course, how the moderators are choosing who to focus these questions to. Now, in this first segment with Mayor Pete, what you're really going to hear is a lot of more questions about Mayor Pete on race. But this time specifically talking about his immigration agenda, and we hear him bringing out a little bit of those Midwestern values. So let's take a listen and see how he does this. Pete, tengo una pregunta para usted. Gracias. Alcalde Pete, eight out of ten Latinos in Texas fear another mass shooting targeting them. This is according to a new Univision poll. President Trump has called Mexican immigrants rapists and killers, tried to ban Muslims from entering the country, and separated children from their parents. His supporters have chanted, build a wall and send her back. Do you think that people who support President Trump and his immigration policies are racist? Anyone who supports this is supporting racism. Este es racismo y es sencillo. The only people, though, who actually buy into this president's hateful rhetoric around immigrants are people who don't know any. We have an opportunity to build an American majority around immigration reform. In my community, a group of conservative Republicans rallied around an individual, a beloved local individual who was deported when he went into ICE to try to get his paperwork sorted out because they never thought it would happen to him. In some of the most conservative rural areas of Iowa, I have seen communities that embraced immigration grow. And it's why part of my plan for revitalizing the economies of rural America includes community renewal visas that would allow cities and towns and counties that are hurting not only for jobs but for population to embrace immigration as we have in my city. You know, the only reason that South Bend is growing right now after years of shrinking is immigration. It's one of the reasons we acted, not waiting for Washington, to create city-issued municipal IDs so that people, regardless of immigration status, in our city had the opportunity to have the benefits of identification. We have an opportunity to actually get something done, but we cannot allow this to continue to be the same debate with the same arguments and the same clever lines, often among the same people since the last real reform happened in the 1980s. We have to actually engage the American majority around the opportunities for not just growth in small communities, but our values, values of welcome, values of faith that all argue for us to manage this humanely and in a way that merits 
marries our values with our laws. Congressista Beto O'Rourke, una pregunta para usted. Um, in an interview eight months ago, you were asked what to do with the so-called overstayers, people who come with a visa and then stay. And you said, I don't know. Uh, do you have an answer now? I do, and, and if you read the rest of that article in the Washington Post, I talked about harmonizing our entry-exit system with Mexico in the same way that we do with Canada. I think that could help us to keep a handle on visa overstays, but I think the larger question that we're trying to get at is how do we rewrite this country's immigration laws in our own image, in the image of Houston, Texas, the most diverse city in the United States of America, in the image of El Paso, Texas, one of the safest cities in the United States of America, safe not despite the fact that we are a city of immigrants, safe because we are a city of immigrants. Conocemos que si queremos asegurar nuestras comunidades y nuestro país, necesitamos tratar cada persona con respeto y dignidad. I will lead an effort to make sure that we rewrite our immigration laws in that way. Never cage another child. Make sure that there is accountability and justice for the seven lives lost under our care and our custody, but also face the fact that Democrats and Republicans alike voted to build a wall that has produced thousands of deaths of people trying to cross to join family or to work a job, that we have been part of deporting people, hundreds of thousands, just in the Obama administration alone, who posed no threat to this country, breaking up their families. Democrats have to get off the back foot. We have to lead on this issue because we know it is right. Legalize America. Begin with those more than one million dreamers. Make them U.S. citizens right now in this, their true home country. Gracias. And extend that to their parents, their sisters, and their brothers. And ensure that we have a legal, safe, orderly system to come to this country and add to our greatness here. So here in this section, we are really listening to the most rhetorically gifted people on this debate stage. We've got Mayor Pete and Beto O'Rourke, both with their, their soaring, broad, metaphorical language, all talking about, you know, immigration. So we start off with Mayor Pete, and he's asked if the people who support President Trump are racist. And if you remember, he was actually asked a really similar question at the beginning of this debate, which we, you know, talked about. But here he gives a different answer to it. And so this time he's saying that the only people who buy into the president's hateful rhetoric around immigrants are the people who don't know any. And then he talks about his community and his, you know, town, which is, you know, mostly white. But he somehow is able to make this about um, changing community in rural America that, um, that, that as immigrants are joining these places and as refugees are joining them, that that's making all of this better. And the thing that is really important and the patterns that Mayor Pete uses is, you know, always talking about my community and rural communities. He's always talking about his community and other rural communities. And that's something that really appeals to, you know, A, a lot of people in an early state like Iowa and then B, it's also very appealing to a lot of Republicans um, and moderates who live in rural areas. And so it's a way for him to sort of speak in the values of, you know, uh, of these, these maybe more conservative or more moderate people or just the early state of Iowa. And then, of course, we get to he, his pattern of, of consistently using the phrase, we have an opportunity again and again and again throughout the debate here. He's always talking about, you know, this is an opportunity for us to, you know, do this. We have an opportunity to do that. And this is his way of, 
you know, uh, sort of opening up possibilities and to, to pivot himself away from talking about all the things that are wrong and all the things that we can't do and to get somebody into a mindset that's not closed off and, and one that is open to new possibilities and one that's open to change. So by talking about, you know, the, the his proposals and his um, policies that he's advocating, um, instead of saying, like, my plan is this, my plan is that, like, maybe Joe Biden might do, the way he frames his proposals are, we have an opportunity. And and that's a very different framing that, that opens up the mind in a different way. And I think that that's really important. And with Beto here, he's going back, we've talked about this on previous episodes, go listen to, you know, some of our other episodes on Beto. One thing that he often does is he talks about rewriting the immigration laws in our own image. And just the way that Beto, that uh, Mayor Pete is able to speak in the language of conservatives, Beto is able to speak in a way that appeals to people who are more religious or people who might be more conservative by framing immigration in a moral um, framework that is religious in its foundation. Because remember that that is all about, you know, sort of, you know, God creating uh, humanity in his own image. This is him sort of telegraphing again that we should rewrite our immigration laws similar to, you know, how, you know, Jesus might uh, advocate for us treating one another. It's sort of a, an, uh, an analogy that he's making without actually having to make it just by using similar language. Yeah, it gets into those thematic appeals. You know, we talked about how Obama during his campaign was using different types of appeals. One was, this was on our previous episode on Obama's rhetorical model. And one of those was factitious appeals. And one of them were policy points. And the others were thematic appeals. What are the appeals of themes that that happen? And, you know, Mayor Pete really is not very thematic. He's trying to be thematic. But really, he comes across as someone who really wants to win on his policy points. But now he's realizing, of course, that a lot of the votes that come in are people who buy into the inspiration and the message and the theme. And that's why you hear this opportunity-based language that Alex is talking about here. And then he also gets into values at the end. So we want to make this about our values, our values of faith, to be able to manage this humanely. So he's, he's really talking about how we want to make this more of a humanistic way of talking about people rather than just, you know, President Trump or his rhetoric or the people that buy into that. And, you know, Pete talks about rural Iowa as that, well, you know, I went to rural Iowa and they accepted the immigration policy there. It's similar to how Beto was talking about earlier on in the debate that he went to the gun show. And when he was at the gun show that people agreed with him, who was it at the gun show who agreed with him? You know, probably not everyone there, especially if they were selling assault, you know, weapons. Um, but he found the one person there who would agree with him. And so now he has the story. You know, Pete found the one person who would agree with his immigration policy. And so now he has the story. And we know that each of these different candidates, you know, have different things that are strengths for them. And, you know, one of Beto's strengths is being more thematic, but we don't hear him getting into a lot of specifics here. You know, we don't hear him really talking about it, um, but he does give this interesting mixed message here. So 
you know, when Beto takes these sidebars and when Jorge Ramos, you know, the moderator takes the sidebars to talk to the audience in Spanish and then they say something in English, you think that they're saying the same thing in English that they just said in Spanish, but they're not. They're giving a sidebar to the Spanish speaking audience and then they're saying something different. Doesn't mean that it's necessarily opposed, but they're saying something different to the English speaking audience. And so that was an interesting thing here to really realize that if you are listening to some of the things that these candidates are saying in Spanish and you don't speak Spanish, you might want to look up what exactly they said there and to you know get into what it is they're actually talking about. So in this next clip, we're going to be going to one of the lesser known candidates, but it's someone who sometimes has a lot of really interesting points. We haven't covered him a lot on the show so far. Andrew Yang, and he's going to be talking about climate change And he has a particularly unique perspective on this since he is the entrepreneur of the audience. So let's take a listen to how he handles this particular topic. So to follow up on what Elizabeth said, why are we losing to the fossil fuel companies? Why are we losing to the gun lobby and the NRA? And the answer is this. We all know, everyone on the stage knows, that our government has been overrun by money and corporate interests. Now, everyone here has a plan to try and curb those corporate interests, but we have to face facts. Money finds a way. Money will find its way back in. So what is the answer? The answer is to wash the money out with people-powered money. My proposal is that we give every American 100 democracy dollars that you can only give to candidates and causes that you like. This would wash out the lobbyist cash by a factor of eight to one. That is the only way we will win. And as someone running for president, I'll tell you, there's the people on one side and the money on the other. The only way for us to win is if we bring them together. Thank you, Mr. Yang. Now, I really wanted to include this section right here because this is a moment where we get a glimpse into why Andrew Yang might be so appealing to a lot of people. We hear about the Yang gang and, you know, they may not be the most visible people on earth, but there are there's a small group of people who are, you know, very passionate about Andrew Yang. And so you get a glimpse of it here when he's talking about why are we losing? You know, he's framing climate change in like this tug of war of winning versus losing in this competitive fashion, almost like, you know, a a business. And he's saying, why are we losing to this? Why are we losing to that? Well, it's because money finds a way. Money will find its way back in. And, you know, it's sort of like he's piggybacking on this idea that the U.S. government and the political system is corrupt and broken by money that uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are advocating. So he's able to sort of make the pitch to people who might be aligned with those two. And then he reframes it almost in a business sense of the why are we losing? And then what's the answer? So, you know, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren's answer to a lot of this is to get rid of money. And Andrew Yang's solution is the opposite. Let's put more money in. Um, You know, the... But the money that they're going to put in, those are democracy dollars. 
and we're he's almost he's like he's reframing the idea of money being bad in the system to money then being the solution and since it's the solution now this new money is the democracy dollars that are going to fix everything it's the people on one side and money on the other and the only way to fix it is to bring them together yeah and you really get a sense of why he has that popularity because he's saying something that is unique and different from a lot of the other candidates, you know, almost none of the other candidates there would say or perhaps have the courage to say that more money is the solution or that we need to somehow invest more or, you know, put money more into a different initiative because there's, you know, he's they're going to get plagued with the question of how are you going to pay for it? But Yang, given his very money focus, again, him as an entrepreneur, he's going to really be able to answer these questions and he answers those type of questions very very well so yes um some really interesting metaphors here you know washing the money out um, winning versus losing and you know that those things that alex just said there about the democracy dollars and the people powered money are are really interesting and it tells you a lot about why andrew yang has really gained some traction all right, that's about all the time we've got for today. Now, like we said at the beginning of the podcast, you'll want to head on over to our website. Click in the top right corner. You'll head over to our Patreon page where you can help support the show for as little as a cup of coffee just to you know keep us on the air and keep this great content coming to you uh, every other week. Now, if you really love the show and you want other people to love the show as well, go to iTunes, go to your podcast app, give us a rating. Five stars is the best. And that makes sure that we're able to show up for even more people and more people can discover us, join in. And if you want to talk about the things that we've talked about here on this episode, go to Twitter or Facebook, send us some comments, send us some messages. Let us know what your thoughts are. If you have topic ideas, if you have feedback on some of the things that we said, you can send it to us online. And in two weeks, we'll talk to you again.